You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Hello and welcome to Worldview, perspectives on world affairs from the Irish Times Network of Foreign Correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. Part of the success attributed to the Paris Climate Summit last week was said to be the full engagement of China in the process. The country's breakneck economic growth and industrialization has brought with it huge man-made environmental problems. Witness the tragic landslide in Shenzhen this week, and of course the now legendary pollution afflicting its capital and other major centres. I'll be talking to our Beijing correspondent, Clifford Coonan, back in Dublin for a few days about China's awareness of the challenges and apparent belated commitment to doing something about them. But first, to look back at an extraordinary year for the European Union and what are seen as two existential crises that it has faced, Greek bankruptcy and the migrant flow that has seen one million refugees in 2015 arriving at its doors. Suzanne Lynch, our Brussels correspondent, is in studio with Paul Gillespie, who this year edited a book on the likely impact of British exit, Brexit on Ireland. Now, last week's summit in Brussels saw leaders again engaging with the two huge challenges of Brexit and migration. Suzanne, did they finish up the year appearing at least to be on top of them in, in some sort of degree of control? Well, I think there was a, a surprise at the at the dominance of the British issue um, at the summit, uh, this December summit. Um, there had been an expectation that the real decision now is going to be pushed forward to, to February and hence it would be a cursory discussion. In fact, it, it ended up being uh, the predominant theme of, of last week's summit. And really, it has to be said, David Cameron did make progress, more progress than some people had imagined. Yes, he still has to, has to set out or or achieve some kind of a of a deal on the migra- on the migrant benefits issue but he definitely got more political support i think than he had been expecting from the other 27 uh, 77 leaders so we're now looking at some kind of a intensive um details of negotiations over the next few weeks really and months with the with the plan being that in february at the february summit it can be um it can be wrapped up from an eu side We'll perhaps come back to, to, to Brexit later, but what about the, the migration issue? Um, the refugee issue, um, I think what was notable about this week's summit was actually the lack of progress that was made on the refugee issue. No new uh, proposals were made. It was all about implementa- implementing proposals that already had been uh, proposed. And to this extent, there is there, it's seriously worrying the state of play at, at the moment. A number of the measures the European Union had decided earlier in the year have not yet been been implemented. Most glaringly is the relocation uh, plan. Listeners will remember this was a very contentious plan to, to introduce quotas and divide redistribute uh, migrants arriving in Italy and Greece across the European Union. Now, this was finally agreed in September, um, despite really hard opposition from a number of East European countries. They did, it was pushed through a qualified uh, majority, um, but to date, out of the 120,000 that have been targeted under this specific scene, only 180 individuals have been relocated. So there are now serious questions, um, question marks over the EU's policy, over implementation, and um, where they can go next when they can't actually follow through on measures they've already uh, agreed to. Paul, the truth is that the EU is in a bad way. Uh, lacklustre growth, doubts about the euro, unemployment, migration, rise of eurosceptic xenophobic right, relative global decline. Europe simply doesn't matter anymore, some people are saying. And uh, according to Tony Barber of the Financial Times, EU is doomed always to be less than the sum of its parts. There's a sort of north-south divide emerged. There's an old new divide. Um, is that pessimism warranted or, or just typical of sort of British Euroscepticism? 
Oh, it's quite a catalogue, and it's a real catalogue. It's not only one that uh, is catalogued from a British perspective. Um, uh, arguably, the migrant crisis is more serious than the than the Euro crisis, uh, in that it lacks institutions to deal with it. Uh, you've no EP, you know, you've no European Central Bank. Uh, the Commission has uh, proposed this uh, uh, relocation plan, and it's had pathetic, minimal take up. The burden has been taken by th- those states most committed to it, ob- most you know, profoundly and notably uh, uh, Germany. Um, uh, uh, and the politics of resolving this issue is also as a resurrection of, to some extent, of intergovernmentalism rather than of um, um, uh, rather than of the uh, of the institutional side. That's all true, uh, um, and that catalogue is is a very is a valid one. But actually, it seems to me there's more to it. Um, uh, they have made substantial progress on the banking side of things and on the euro crisis. Uh, it remains very much an open question whether they can achieve a banking union. Uh, the Germans are heavily resisting any mutualization, as we know, uh, and there are those commentators who say, look, that's it, uh, and, and that you have to think about a different kind of um, framework uh, other than a quasi-federal one for the euro system. Uh, now, that's a, an open question. Uh, the the levels of intrusion to police uh, and, and regulate uh, economic policy coming out of the euro crisis is very impressive and it's been incrementally added to and you have this five presidents report which lays out a kind of schedule of action so i think the will to continue politically is is still there still strong and uh, that catalogue of potential disaster which arises out of uh, the migration crisis out of uh, uh, um, sceptical populist, right-wing populist particularly uh, parties, is one that actually galvanises uh, liberal and left forces, if you like, uh, uh, towards actually resolving these problems. So I think, you know, it, it's more nuanced than, than, than that uh, catalogue, uh, however valid it is, would lead one to believe. But if we were having this discussion a year ago, I think we would probably be talking about the, but the, Europe facing into... Uh, a period when it really had to get to grips with another phase of integration. That the, uh, and it's not simply integration of the banking system or the dealing with specific uh, problems, but but more generally, the the European project, if it was going to move forward, uh, if it wasn't going to move forward, it would move backwards. But where would that, you know, motive, that engine for integration come from? And do you see evidence of it? Well, it's, it's, the evidence I would see is from the, the polarization that you describe. Uh, I think there's a um, uh, there's a big problem of legitimacy in the system, and there's a big problem of political agency. And you know, in the in the research side and analysis side uh, of, the, of the understanding of integration, uh, there's a big gap in what we would call compar- the comparative politics of the system. Nonetheless, go back to Greece. Um, uh, when the, the real choice was put to the Syriza new left-wing movement uh, as to whether they got out of the euro or not, they very much opted to stay in. Look at the Spanish outcome uh, um, uh, and look at that Podemos, again, new sort of left party. Uh, they're now playing uh, a, more, a much more nuanced role vis-a-vis the European issue and vis-a-vis the state structure of Spain than might have been expected. And they're actually having to read the alternatives 
coming out. So I think we need to have a, a, a much more uh, solid understanding of the levels of uh, political uh, balance within the system. And I think the, the energy will come from uh, a certain Europeanization of the uh, of the ways in which uh, systems are changed. Political systems, national political systems, are changing around Europe. Again, it, that's that's tentative, but I think there's interesting linkages developing there in the centre right, uh, uh, but also in this new, uh, rather more fragmented, but actually quite dynamic uh, liberal left, uh, um, and and that's. These are being expressed at European level. I wonder what Suzanne, you know, well, would, would would agree. Yeah, just to come uh, pick on uh, up on some of those points. I think, in a way, there are a lot of similarities between the Greek crisis and the migration crisis, because they they both exposed the fact that you know, in order for the euro to work, you need a more integrated system. You probably need a common budget. You probably the logical outcome is a common finance ministry, etc. Similarly, with the, with the migration issue, once countries are in Schengen and they share an external border, well, then you know th- there has to be a, a, a collective response to migration. It doesn't make sense, for example, one country n- not to take more migrants than the other. It's like saying Texas and Massachusetts that there's some diff. So, but I think the problem is that a lot of the public don't want that level of integration. And what we're seeing now is this kind of contradiction at the heart of Europe in order for these projects to work. Uh, the logical outcome is more integration um, and more a more centralised system. But we are seeing um, that the public in, in various different countries uh, don't, don't want that. So that, that, is a, that is a problem one could say that the e- Europe has always struggled with. But I think it's, it's come to the fore with those two issues. And I think in Brussels this year, what I see has emerged in the second half of the year particularly is a worrying division between East and West. Um, I think it's been very interesting how the migration issue has played out in, in the Eastern European is this, countries. Is this old Europe and new, new Europe I rather think, than East and West? Um, yeah, I suppose, yeah, exactly. The, the, the newer countries who joined yeah. in, in, in 2004, um, they were, this was the first time, we, we've often seen um, countries like Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, etc. Um, Germany has always managed to bring them with them. But I think in this, this was the first instance we saw them standing up to, to Germany saying, no, we're not in favour of this. And I mean, it, it has exposed, um, you know, I, I would say a worrying development. I mean, these are the countries that benefited so much from free movement themselves. And yet they were so viscerally opposed um, to any quota system for migrants into their own country. So I think that's the kind of theme to watch, if you like, 2016. Will that, will that rift deepen or was it just, you know, a product of this of this particular crisis? But do you see anywhere where there is a particular appetite for radical integration? I do think I agree with Paul that a lot of progress has been made on, on the euro side, um, and the now now there is debate about banking union about the deposit insurance scheme, and again, as Paul was mentioning, there resistance uh, from Germany on that. Um, but no, there's been undoubtedly. I mean, the the system whereby now national governments uh, submit their budgets to the European Commission every October that is now up and running, um, and that that European semester system has been established and really is working. So um, what what is that? You know. That's that was these were new rules that were brought in at the height of the eurozone crisis, which um, introduces a greater level of fiscal oversight from Brussels. So now each country, that's why our own budget was moved in the year. It now happens in October. Um, us are in Dublin and, and other finance ministries must submit their their budget uh, to Brussels. Now there's arguments about what how much power um, the Commission has to impose fines. Technically, it does, but really, you know, would it would it do that? But at the same time, I think it does um, give a greater oversight. 
um, and, and maybe a kind of a watchdog uh, role, if you like, mm. um, for national government. This, this is why we've been talking in recent days about the HSC budget and, and how it absolutely can't exactly. uh, run short of money in the middle of this year. Uh, exactly. And I think it... it, it, it if you were talking to your sceptic, say, for example, Britain, this is actually one of the things they, they detest most, saying this should not be the, the competence of Brussels. Whereas, in fact, I find in people in Ireland actually feel quite comfortable with the idea that there is another body that's looking over our politicians' shoulders. Uh, giving and, and you see this in different countries, um, the Italians as well also, but the Fra- France is not happy about the level of scrutiny it, it seems. It's quite interesting how it plays out in each country. But if if Europe isn't in danger of, of if you like, uh, disintegrating in the next period, we still face the challenge of, of Brexit. Paul, Cameron appears to be retreating on, on his demand for welfare reform. It, it's not clear where he stands in the face of, of completely united opposition from, from other uh, member states. Uh, and his cabinet is increasingly de- demanding the right to oppose what they are apparently believing is going to be an inconsequential uh, deal uh, in is defensive membership winnable or is it slipping away? Oh, I think it's winnable. Uh, um, he's he's narrowed uh, the, the ambition uh, of the demands over the last number of months, over the last year, uh, and particularly in the autumn, um, he took out uh, some of the uh, so- social Europe dimensions that could the the. Um, uh, the, the working time directive, for example, isn't in is, isn't in it. Uh, it, and that's significant because he was responding there to pressure from the trade union movement and to some reason from the British Labour Party on that, who were saying that if you do go for that kind of radical uh, change, you you lose our support in the vote. So he's had to take account of the obviously of the domestic politics. I think there is a package doable by by February. There'll be some um, stitch up on the on the welfare issue. Then he faces a qualitatively different kind of argument uh, as to, you know, in the referendum. And I think increasingly he's presenting this in some kind of existential way. He's brought the issue of security, both economic security and uh, military defence security, much more into the foreground. He's brought the role of Britain as a foreign policy actor in the European setting uh, towards the foreground. He sees domestically the fact that he will be out of office the next day if he loses. He also sees the implications for Scotland, which is now very much part of the mainstream narrative uh, that the UK itself would be threatened if they pull out. Now, all of that is going to be brought to bear in the referendum. And I think we've seen, uh, we will see a lot more energy, including emotional energy, put in by Cameron. Uh, and that, that he's a very effective you know, political leader. And I don't underestimate that aspect alongside the hard-nosed economic calculation. Uh, and therefore, you know, again, going back to the, your original um, uh, 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 set of problems facing Europe, uh, if, if, if Cameron wins through and Britain stays in, it doesn't look as disintegrative as it might have done. And do you get that sense in, in Brussels that a deal is on the cards, that a deal is possible? I do, but I agree with Paul that you know the easy bit in one sense will be once he gets his deal, that's it from the EU side, and then it's up to him to sell it. But there is a growing sense. Uh, I mean, even I was speaking to people after the summit last week, and in that room with the 27 leaders, they talked about Cameron being this amazing performer 
or politically. He was able to communicate. The other leaders listened to him. They, they, he dazzled them in the room. This is what they all said afterwards to an extent they hadn't expected. And there is a belief that he is central to how this campaign runs. And also George Osborne, Chancellor of the Exchequer, safe pair of hands. Um, and, you know, is there, a, not, to, not to stereotype too much, but, you know, the, the Conservative with a, with a small C, are the British people ultimately, are they really going to make that leap? Um, and are we going to see who, who comes out on the no side? That's going to be quite crucial. But I think if we've got Cameron, Cameron and Osborne strongly behind it, that, that gives a huge um, momentum um, to, to stay in. We do have to remember, I mean, this year was also the year of the of the Conservative uh, victory in, in May in the general election, that decisive victory that no one really predicted. So, um, yeah, I, I would agree with Paul that how uh, Cameron plays this is going to be crucial to the outcome, really. The, uh, I was talking the other day to a senior British official who said that they estimate that Cameron himself is worth 20% of, of the vote in, in, a, in a referendum campaign, which is, yeah. which is yeah. very much corroborates what you're saying. Now, uh, Paul, uh, Enda Kenny says that he's supporting Cameron. What does that mean? And, and uh, does it mean that we're in danger of giving stuff away that we shouldn't be giving away? Not really, partly because, uh, even perhaps mainly because of uh, Cameron's own narrowing of the field, as I discussed earlier. So there isn't that much to give away bilaterally. Uh, Kenny was strongly in support and vocally in support of Cameron at this meeting. But uh, again, it, uh, as Suzanne was saying, if it, it, around the room there was an admiration for the way he was handling it and, and a response. So Kenny wasn't sort of out on a limb in any real sense there. Um, uh, let me go back to, to the Irish Times polling recently. I had a very interesting set of results because most of our Irish people, two thirds plus in, on nearly all counts, support what Cameron is looking for uh, when it was put to them. That is a reformed Europe. Um, now, we, we can you can talk politically about the levels of reform that are involved, but the optimal outcome and one that seems closer after this summit is one in which Cameron is able to present an outcome that's not just Britain against the rest, but actually Britain with the rest, so that it becomes something a bit more multilateral. And that raises the question going from earlier, uh, which Suzanne raised there, as to whether people want more radical integration. You see, I think it's a very mixed picture. Um, uh, you could say that people around the system want to see re reforms in some of the areas where Cameron is articulating, not exactly in the same way, but that goes in a sense, that resonates. Uh, there's a wider sense in which a more social Europe um, in various ways is much more popular than many leaders allow. Uh, and the kind of polarisation between neoliberal austerity positions and more social democratic ones at leadership level has been very ineffective, I think, uh, in the last number of years. For maybe it's quite easy to explain that. But at the popular level, it may be rather different. Uh, and I, 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 think, uh, I, I, would, I think, therefore, I would like to see the Brexit issue um, as to some extent part of a wider, uh, in a wider European political setting, uh, as well as in the very, you know, polarised domestic setting, which does put um, uh, a strong uh, sceptical uh, wing uh, against a, uh, a wing of, Br of Britain and in England that wants to stay in. And that crowd that want to stay in 
arguably the majority, but also resonate around the rest of Europe. I wonder if that makes sense. There is a European Britain trying to get out of this uh, dilemma as well as a very sceptical Britain wanting to get out of the we don't, EU. We don't really or haven't so far heard very much from them is, is part of the problem. Sure, sure. Thank you very that, much, Paul. That's back to Cameron. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you, Paul, and, and thank you, Suzanne. You're listening to the Irish Times. And now to China. Clifford, the landslide in Shenzhen this week has cost nearly 80 lives. It epitomises a lot of precisely what's wrong about the country and its unregulated expansion. Shenzhen was a poor village on the Pearl River Delta near Hong Kong, which has transformed from a fishing community of about 30,000 to a sprawling industrial financial megacity with a population by some estimated to exceed 12 million. This this is a slide of a huge build-up of waste building material now, you know the city well. Can you can you describe it? Well, Shenzhen, as you say, was a, a small fishing village for many years. And then um, the transformation is really remarkable. It's one of the um, largely built on the fact of its proximity to Hong Kong and, um, a, and also to Dongguan, which is a neighboring city where a lot of the factories are located. So Shenzhen now, when you go there, there's whole sections of the city that just didn't exist before. It's remarkable. You really find yourself... Um, going to to brand new streets that are popping up the whole time. It's really like, I can't think of any other precedents for this, you know, and all of this is happening at a, a terrific pace. I mean, this is all happening in three and a half, 35 years, um, basically. So um, there's not a lot of thought, I think, goes into, into maybe some of the broader planning issues. Um, it's very much just meeting demand. So these whole areas of the city are just springing up um, at a terrific pace. So Things like these sort of accidents um, or these sort of landslides, um, you can kind of see where they're coming from because there isn't, um, there just isn't a lot of thought given to um, some of the issues um, about health and safety when it comes to uh, things like that. And and this was literally uh, a huge pile of mud, which was the product of some previous building program. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's it. And, and then apparently they um, were um, asked to stop this and then they, they went ahead with uh, but they went ahead adding to this and then eventually it, uh, it collapsed. So um, I think it shows that, um, I mean, it's, it's evidence again of how, how things are just happening at maybe too fast a pace. Um, Shenzhen is also, I mean, China's economy is slowing, um, as we know, but um, you really see um, how... Shenzhen ha- doesn't really feel like it's slowing down at all. Um, there's an awful lot of um, startups there, internet startups. There's, it's really a very, very busy place. Um, I was there two weeks ago, and there's on the streets there are people selling um, or hiring booths springing up all over the city. They're still still growing very fast, so um, it's still very much on the make. And um, whereas in the north of this of the country, you can really see the economic slowdown, but in Shenzhen, you don't feel it at all. But it's it's known for its poor working conditions and, and labour practice and the vast complex of electronics factories. Um, there was a spate uh, of suicides at a place called uh, factory run by Foxconn, I believe. That's right. Yeah, at Foxconn, they um, they had a lot of um, young, predominantly young people, uh, who were uh, committing suicide. Um, they say that that had to do with as well as the working conditions, also the fact that Shenzhen is growing fast. Property is expensive. It's very difficult for you to buy an apartment if you're living there. Um, and so it's difficult for a young person. Um, Foxconn had, had, has hundreds of, uh, more than 100,000 employees. Apparently they kill, they slaughter 3,000 pigs a week for the, 
for the uh, the canteen there. Um, it's really remarkable. And actually, what they did then, which uh, was they put these um, these barriers up on the roof to stop people jumping, which is one way of uh, of slowing down the suicide rate. But um, yeah, Foxconn is now moving to other parts of the country because Shenzhen is getting more expensive. But um, it's still this this growth is still very much in evidence. And and very much uncontrolled. I mean, I, I gather there was an explosion in in Tianjin uh, uh, only four months ago, in, in which 150 people died. Mm. Again, part of the same unregulated expansion. This is it. I mean, it's it's um, in a way it's sort of reminiscent of what happened in the U.S. in the ni- late 19th century. You know, that um, it's just because this is all the the pace of expansion. They need they need huge amounts of um, chemicals um, to to help with this expansion, and it was all stored. Um, it wasn't properly um, wasn't properly uh, controlled, and then we had this. So we had this um, explosion in Tianjin, which now I was looking at photographs yesterday uh, of the site. Yesterday, it still looks like a like a like a n- small nuclear explosion. I said it really is remarkable. Uh, and, um, and and is anybody going to pay for this? Is anybody going to be answerable? I mean, I know Xi has launched a campaign against uh, corruption, but are these the sort of people who are uh, are the people who are responsible for this? Are they, are they his targets? I think so. I mean, I think that's one thing about the corruption campaign um, that we will see more people um, being held responsible for things, and it is part of the, part of the corruption campaign is is aimed at um, making people more responsible. Uh, so, for example, things like food safety is, is now a very big issue in China because we had a couple of food scares over the last decade. Um, now people are, are being held responsible for it. Um, and the quality of food has improved as a result. So I think, um, I mean, China is a very pragmatic place. The Chinese government is very pragmatic. And it does seem to learn from these incidents in a way that, um, you know, they will, the consequences will be borne. And, you um, in Tianjin, some senior leaders were were in in the city government were held accountable, um, and I imagine in Shenzhen there's going to be a lot of questions asked as well. Well, talking of man-made disasters, uh, turning to Beijing and and the the smog that you live with uh, every day, what, what's it like living in in uh, this most polluted city in the world? Yeah, it's it's. Um, you have a sort of routines, you know, um, when you wake up in the morning, you look out and if it's if it's looking a bit cloudy, you, we, we check on these apps that um, that we have um, about the air quality. There's two readings. One is the, the government reading and one is the U.S. embassy reading. As you might imagine, the U.S. embassy reading is often a bit more, um, it's not quite as rosy a picture. But increasingly, the, the government readings are fairly accurate. Um, and we we check the 2.5 PM 2.5, which are the really um, dangerous particle readings, and we do that in the morning. And then with the the children when they're going to school, they'll put on the um, they put on their masks. And um, we also have um, air purifiers in every room in the house, and uh, and so we crank them up as well. So there's sort of steps you have to take to just make the environment um, work for you. Um, in my son's school. They have uh, two giant domes, oxygenated domes, uh, where they have um, after-school activities or even during school as well. If it's if it's particularly polluted, um, because obviously they can't they can't go outdoors, you know. So it's uh, and that's you know, which is quite an expensive um, 
way of uh, of dealing with it. But it just shows that it's almost like science fiction. And um, so it's more. I think it's more depressing in a way that the the as as well as I mean the health. Obviously, there's health benefits, but you can. Or sorry, there's health um, implications, but you try to do. Uh, you try to do what you can to sort of to lessen those. Are you using the air purifiers, wearing masks, and mm. and that? But it's um, it's it's generally more depressing than anything else. Just and do you get a real sense of the Chinese government engaged with this issue and trying to trying to reduce it? I mean, I know periodically you have cars are banned from the city mm. for for a half a day or whatever. But is is there a serious engagement with the with the issue? Um, I think increasingly there is. I mean. It used to be maybe ten years ago. The only people who cared about pollution were, frank, were were foreigners. Really, the Chinese didn't really didn't really particularly care, and that has changed now. That people are worried about their children's health, particularly with with the air pollution, and because it's become that kind of issue, um, the government is now having to take it seriously because people, you know, it could have a destabilizing effect if people feel that. Um, that all this economic growth is fine, but if at what cost? And if 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 the pollu- if the environment is so badly degraded that the city becomes unlivable, I mean, even the, the mayor of Beijing himself said the city is often unlivable. So it's um, I think it is being taken more seriously, but at the same time, there's still issues with um, the use of coal-fired power stations. China still gets most of its energy, the vast majority of its energy, from coal-fired power stations, um, and it has signaled that this will continue. Um, also, they're investing, still building new coal-fired power stations um, because there's a political, uh, it's building the infrastructure the, it's, to keep the economy going. They're investing in coal-fired power stations, which means that they're building capacity for this again. So while they are trying to do things about the cars on the road and things like that, um, the bigger picture is still um, probably needs more work. And we've seen it at an international level engagement at, at, the, at the climate summit in, in terms of will, willingness to meet some kind of climate targets. Yeah, um, I think, and I think that's a reflection of the fact that um, that people are unhappy about it now. That China realizes that it has a, it has to take this seriously, um, and Xi Jinping has made it one of the has made it part of his his um, of his um, main policies. Uh, he's very uh, very keen on uh, on on presenting a public face showing that China is, is trying to do something about the environment. But at the same time, they have to balance this with the need to develop the economy and for the economy to grow. So it's a bit of a balancing act for China um, in how they actually go about it. But as we saw then in Paris, though, that they they did come out with targets and, um, and they did engage with the US, the two biggest polluters, uh, together. Um, so perhaps um, we're going to see... Um, more international development. And, and in China itself, do you see the emergence at all of, a, of an environmental movement of NGO-type organisations, or is it very much just individuals? Um, it's still individual. I mean, Greenpeace is allowed. Um, NGOs are in a difficult position in China because technically they're not, they're, can't, they're not really allowed. So um, everything has to come from the party. So the party is driving a lot of this. Um, but you do have Greenpeace are there now, and they're, they're they've been fairly busy and they're coming up with some great research and things so um, there is definitely more of of an awareness among people Thank you Clifford, Uh, my thanks also to Suzanne Lynch and Paul Gillespie, our producer Declan Conlon and on sound Gary White